Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. My name is Mark Hanna and in today's episode I'm joined by Dean Adrian Wing and Professor Anna Spain Bradley to discuss the subject of women of colour and human rights. Dean Wing is the Bessie Dutton Murray Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law, Associate Dean of the International and Comparative Law Programs there, and Director of the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights. Dean Wing is considered a leading proponent of global critical race feminism, which in her own words draws on the awareness of oppression that women of color face and the distinctive voice they have in the development of human rights because of this. Dean Wing has been actively involved in the realization of human rights at a global level herself for many years and amongst other things advised on the drafting of the constitutions for Rwanda, Palestine and South Africa. Professor Anaspian Bradley is the Vice Chancellor for Equity, Diversity and Inclusion at the University of California, Los Angeles. Previously Professor of International Law at the University of Colorado Boulder, Professor Spain Bradley has published widely on the subject of international law and human rights from a critical race theory perspective. Most recently, she's argued that international law has failed to properly address the problem of racism and that racism should be explicitly recognised as a human rights violation under international law. I'd like to thank both Dean Wing and Professor Spain Bradley for joining us and sharing their insights on the subject of women of colour and human rights. It really was a pleasure to talk with them. I'd also like to say thank you to Richard Somerville, who stayed late of an evening in Belfast to make sure we could connect with our guests in Iowa and Los Angeles. Finally, I'd like to say thanks to James Somerville, no relation, for the artwork for the flyer for the podcast. Thank you very much both for joining me today. Thank Um, you. Great to be here. Today we are going to be talking about the subject of women of colour and human rights. Before we start, I wanted to just talk a bit about terminology, uh, because I think that that's maybe important. I mean, human rights itself is uh, a term that's open to interpretation. We can talk a bit about that in a minute. But I I thought maybe it's worth defining first what is meant by women of colour. Uh, because it's not simply that we're talking about African-American women, is it, or even black women around the world. It's much broader category than that, isn't it? Uh, so let me ask that, that first to you, Dean Wing. Yes, the term women of color, what it means to us, I'm going to say what it means in the U.S. and then outside. In the United States, women of color would include blacks, Latinos, Uh, Latinas, Asians, Native Americans, many Muslims, groups such as this. Um, And they could be people who are involved only in U.S. issues or they could be people who have foreign nationality, etc. In the global context, uh, women of color could mean the women in an entire country, right? That the country is people of color, or it could mean women who are part of a minority group. So for instance, Arab women who are in France uh, or something like that. So you may say, why would you even put these, these groups together? Unfortunately, no matter where they are, whether they're a minority in a, in a, 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 a country or they're the women of that country, they are going to be at the bottom. They're going to be at the bottom of the society economically, in terms of education, and socially. And so that's why you can uh, put these different types of people together at an initial stage of of trying to define the term. And I would just add to Dean Wing's very uh, illustrative explanation to this, that when we talk about labels, we really need to take a pause and step back and ask, you know, how do people identify themselves? And so how do various women around the world coming from different unique cultural and historical backgrounds identify themselves? And many times groups of women do not get the opportunity in a society to identify or label themselves. The labels are created 
often by men, often by others, and put upon people, and in this case, since we're talking about women, put upon women. So I think in, in 2020, moving forward, you know, a, a foundational principle to inclusion is to make sure that people have the opportunity to name themselves and that others are respectful of how they choose to do so. Yes. And so um, I'm using in my own work this kind of terminology, but it could be um, that when people are naming themselves, they wouldn't see themselves as women of color at all. So for instance, in America, some people will see Arabs as people of color, but there are Arabs who are white with blue eyes and blonde hair, and there are Arabs that are jet black, and maybe all of them would not see themselves at all as a person of color. And in our demographic uh, categorizations in the U.S., if you're filling out a form, somebody who's Arab may check the box white or Caucasian. So uh, it, it, the, the bottom line is it's all socially constructed, and it could be socially constructed by one person or in terms of groups of people. And, and so for me in my career, my 40-year career, it's been interesting because in the U.S., um, I'm categorized as African-American, a descendant of slaves. In South Africa, I'm viewed as a so-called colored uh, which was, uh, you know, a category under apartheid. And because I'm lighter skinned, I would I was looked at as a colored when I went there. And then in Brazil, I'm considered white. And so the same me in three different places, and I'm looked at uh, differently, even though I'm still the same me. Mm-hmm. Here, so- here uh, to Dean Wing. So I also have fantastic stories of living and working abroad. One where I was working in Lusaka in Zambia and in the apartment I was staying in, a very large spider landed on my head. (laughs) And I subsequently screamed very loudly and the whole neighborhood came running and they said, oh, the white lady, the white lady, uh, because I was from America. And so it translated into a concept of whiteness for, for people at that particular place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in America, how we describe ourselves as a community of, of people who uh, have survived being enslaved and, and all of our ancestors has changed over the time. My great grandmother um, grew up in a town so small in Georgia that it doesn't exist anymore. And she was colored. And my grandmother um, very much didn't like the terminology Negro, which is what my dad used for a long time, moving into African American and now Black American. So we have changed the terminology throughout history. Uh, And I think what's important there is that, again, people have a reason why they want to be called a certain label. And it's important to be respectful of that. Now, what's also interesting, my partner, James, who is also African American, he's very dark skinned. So when when we go somewhere like in Africa, they will look at him and think he's an African. They will look at me and Anna and I are, are in the similar lighter color and we're they are looking at us as so-called white. They look at him as black, but once he starts talking and they see his accent is American, they then look at at him as oh he's American. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the American identity trumps his coloring, um, and they realize, okay, he's not African, he's, he's an American. <laughs> so everything is very contingent on, you know, culture, and it's a social construction, and that means then that the term women of color is, it's got to be very open-ended and fluid. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Well, bear that in mind, then, I mean, <laughs> because it, it seems that, you know, you have to you know, take that on board when you talk about this subject and, and it's hard to define at the beginning, but bearing that in mind then. Uh, so let me ask you, Dean Wing, because you have been called the mother of uh, global critical race feminism. Can you explain what global critical race feminism is to listeners and what it has to say about women of color and human rights and the relationship between what you might call women of color and human rights? Yes, um, I did. I was the editor of an anthology in 2000 called Global Critical Race Feminism, 
Prior to that, I was the editor of an anthology called Critical Race Feminism, uh, and I'm the only one that's done um, anthologies or readers of this type, and so I get called the mother of uh, the, the, this, this field, and, um, and now I'm a grandmother. Uh, so maybe I'm the grandmother of the field. But anyway, there's a particular reason for these terms. Um, uh, critical, uh, the use of the word critical relates to critical legal studies, critical networks, progressive looks at the law, race, you know, race and ethnicity. Feminism uh, relates both to kind of traditional feminism, but also feminism as experienced by women of color. So we have some people calling it womanism or other kinds of uh, words. And so uh, critical race feminism means women of color and how are they viewed under the law. And then when you put the global in front, it means looking at the legal status of such women all over the world. So that's where the terminology, uh, you know, comes from. And it's uh, um, very involved with all areas of law, um, but in particular, human rights law. And by human rights law here, I mean, uh, it could be in the US context, which is US civil rights, we use that term or it can be uh, involving international human rights, including both civil and political rights and economic, social, and cultural rights. So you would include civil rights within the term human rights. That falls within the same concept for you. Yes, yes. The, let, uh, let, me, let me ask that question to Professor Spain Bradley as well. Do you also consider that civil rights falls within the concept of human rights? Absolutely. I mean, if we look at the core documents and foundational principles of what are human rights and what are human rights in the international area, civil rights are one of them. We also have economic rights, social rights, cultural rights, political rights. So civil rights are certainly part and parcel of a broader spectrum of rights that uh, Dean Wing and I understand as a part of international human rights, as do so many in the field. Okay, because what's interesting is that so many times the history of human rights, they don't include, uh, you know, the American Civil Rights Movement, for example, as a starting point, and it, it's usually from the 1970s onwards uh, or from the end of the war, but it really misses out that kind of era of the 1950s, 1960s in the United States and, and the Civil Rights Movement as being part of that, which is why I ask. Um, but I, I, let me get back to... so. To, to Dean Wing and your point then about global critical race feminism and its relationship with human rights. Yes. What would you so uh, want me to flesh you were, out? You were explaining what global critical race feminism is and, and what it has to say about women of color and their relationship with the development of human rights. Yes. Um, and, and also let me touch upon the, the comment you just made about the U.S. civil rights movement. Unfortunately, in the U.S. legal context, um, the U.S. only looks at civil rights. It does not embrace the idea of economic, social, and cultural rights. It's that, that those concepts are not in our constitution. And so because we're kind of isolated uh, in, in having a narrow view of, of what rights are in the U.S., I think uh, it's ended up where we're absent. You know, the U.S. civil rights movement ends up being not put into the literature as part of, um, you know, international human rights. And, and so, um, you know, we're using this global term as an umbrella, you know, global critical race feminism, but it's such a broad term. So, you know, for instance, there can be people who uh, their, their scholarship deals with international business transactions. And you may say, well, that's just global capitalism. What does that have to do with human rights and women of color? Well, guess who are the low paid workers around the world that make global capitalism function? That's going to be women of color, right? Who are paid pennies and, and what they produce then goes all over the world. So, even in a topic that would appear to not have anything to do necessarily with human rights, human rights are definitely going to be involved. And we've even seen recently in the U.S. 
under the COVID pandemic um, in, the, in this climate we're in, it turns out to be a disproportionate number of people of color and women of color who have low paid jobs in the United States in the service industry and in healthcare. And they're on the front line in the fight against COVID, even though they are disproportionately being affected by the disease themselves. I have 11 family members in New York area who have had COVID and two of them, unfortunately, have passed away. So that needs to be part of the, the discussion of global critical race feminism, you know, a U.S. example, as well as an example, you know, that could be in Pakistan or France or, you know, some other part of the world. And I just would add in here, you know, I think that Dean Wing's discussion of this raises a, a point that many scholars in both the critical race theory spaces and the third world approaches to international law spaces recognize uh, in the work of uh, Professor Derek Bell, whose seminal piece, Faces at the Bottom of the, of the, of the Well, explains it all. And he talks about uh, something, and I'll just quote for his, from his book. He says, quote, black people are the magical faces at the bottom of society's well. Even the poorest whites, those who must live their lives only a few levels above, gain their self-esteem by gazing down on us, end quote. And what, it, what Dean Wing's work has done is to also show that among the black faces, it is the women who are even more so most often at the bottom of the well. Uh, and so we see this in the history of civil rights in America and the history of the birth of the international human rights movement, which have important connections, which are often not picked up on. Uh, so looking back, we can see how even from the start of the formation of the United Nations, the San Francisco conference, where the United Nations Charter was adopted, uh, we had activists and educators and experts, including the great late great W.E.B. Du Bois, they're advocating for the UN to make sure that it took into account the perspectives of black and brown people throughout the world who were subject to racism, even as there was new attention to promoting human rights. Um, and it, I, here I just want to give a shout out to Professor Henry Richardson, who has written a lot about this history, the intersection between the struggle for civil rights in the United States and the struggle for human rights more broadly and independence movements throughout the post-colonial world and more. Uh, but here we don't see enough about the contributions that women have given in these spaces. And that's because there's history is often shared but through the lens of those who are writing it. Uh, and they have not raised the link between the many women that were a part of those movements and critical to their success. And that's that's what I wanted to get to actually is this, you know, you talk about Derek Bell and the faces at the bottom of the well. And as you said, and, and for women, they're often doubly excluded or they're excluded along multiple axes of identity. And, and that is something that you've talked about uh, before Dean Wing and, and carrying on from uh, Mari Matsuda and, and talking about this distinctive voice that uh, women of color have had in the development of human rights is not right and that they've had a special voice and this sense that they are uh, at the bottom rung as you might say or the faces at the bottom of the well but it, because of that they have had a distinctive voice in the development of human rights is that correct? Yes, this term distinctive voice uh, came up in the writing of people like Mari Matsuda and others in the critical race theory movement who, who said, you know, we, meaning people of color, have a distinctive voice. And it was very controversial because there were people, other people saying, what are you talking about? Are you saying you can speak about things and we can't? Um, it isn't that you that anyone can't speak about any topic. So for instance, I write about Palestinians. I write about South Africans, even though I am neither Palestinian nor South African. But what it means is if I have a distinctive voice as an African-American female professor, there is an outlook I will have from having lived a certain life and had certain experiences. And even though people like um, Professor Spain Bradley and I are relatively globally privileged, right, as academics, we still, 
every day that we walk around in, in our society have to deal with the fact that we may be looked at as dangerous, as evil. Um, you know, we've been called, uh, certain women have been called nasty by the president of, of our country. And so we're not exempt from that just because, you know, we have a class status that may be higher uh, than most. Um, and I wanted to uh, go back because mainly women of color have been invisible in a lot of these, uh, in the histories. Uh, but it is women of color, you know, like ourselves, who are writing to bring out the invisible, writing to bring out uh, the women who are at the bottom of the well. And so I just wanted to mention two people in that era of the United Nations being formed and, and things happening where W.E.B. Du Bois from the United States is known for his work, people don't often think about Josephine Baker, who was an African-American woman who was famous as an entertainer. Her career was mainly in France. People don't know that uh, she worked in the French underground against the Nazis and was given the Croix de Guerre from the French government, and that she was also against the U.S. Uh, racist, you know, system in terms of what we call Jim Crow um, back in the 50s. And so her voice is not often heard, um, and she also adopted. 12 kids from different nationalities. So in terms of the international human right to have a family uh, and to raise a family, she was able to do something in France she couldn't have done in the United States because no one would have given a black woman a white child. Yet her rainbow tribe included um, you know, children from, from so many different countries. So she's one of the voices that has should be seen as part of development of human rights and yet is not heard. And then just one other voice I'll bring up, which who is more well-known, Angela Davis, Professor Angela Davis, formerly from, she used to be at UCLA, then UC Santa Cruz. You know, she has done both U.S. civil rights focusing on the criminal justice system, but also has been a major voice in terms of international uh, human rights. And even though she's in her 70s now, she's very vocal in what's happening in the U United States. So, yes, we have a distinctive voice, and it's not the same. My voice may not be the same as Angela Davis, just because, you know, we happen to be from the, the same group, but it will be different than the viewpoint of, you know, one of the great uh, white male elite scholars from Oxford or Sorbonne or Belfast or some other place. Uh, but there's a tension there, isn't there? Because you know, on the one hand, you're saying, you know, women of color and, you know, they're excluded, the bottom rung of society, and at the same time that they have had this distinctive voice. Is that overcome through uh, women of color who have had access, who have been professors, who have, uh, you know, worked as lawyers, worked as judges, uh, you know, had been members of international organizations, uh, treaty bodies and things like that? Is is that what, what it takes or is, does also critical race feminism, global critical race feminism also recognize that it's not only those women of color with, you know, privileged positions and, and, and access to those kind of forums, but it's also uh, women without those kind of opportunities and, and regular women of color who also have this influence on human rights also. So I'll just jump in on this one to say, you know, women women of color around the world have done so much and continue to do so much. And so we don't even need to parse it um, that way in particular. So for example, our sisters who founded Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, come from their set of experiences. Uh, everybody comes from their set of experiences. And of course, there are those of us who have been able to, you know, move up, if you will, the economic ladder, uh, because we have, you know, had certain opportunities to go to certain schools or get certain jobs or have mentors who helped us along the way. And there are those many, many more 
who have not had those opportunities, who, who are still making change. Um, but here, I think the one way to think about this conversation more broadly in the global context is this principle that I love and I teach all the time, and it's the principle of subsidiarity. And so this is an organizing principle that where you have a conflict, where you have a crisis, where you have uh, rights being violated, it's people who are experiencing that, who are at the level to have the, the legitimacy and the authority to solve those problems. So decisions about what to do should be at the local level rather than by outsiders who are coming in. Uh, and this is something that I and many others wrote about in a great uh, book called Black Women in International Law. And this was edited by Jeremy Levitt, came out on Cambridge University Press uh, several years back. And in that, I wrote a chapter about African women leaders in particular. And I just want to give this story. So in 2011, we had the Nobel Peace Prize go to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former president of Nigeria, and Lehman Jabouwi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, as well as a Yemeni activist um, whose last name is Carmen. So the award was giving them to them collectively for their nonviolent struggle for the safety of women and for full women's rights to participation in peacebuilding work. Now, uh, Jibui is a Liberian mother. That's how she described herself. And she was victimized during the war, saw her neighborhood uh, and people that she cared about victimized. And she developed a network during the war where uh, that went on to speak out after the war about mass action for peace and how to heal people from the trauma that they had experienced. She brought a particular lens back to Dean Wing's distinctive voice uh, and introduced this concept that we call Peace Church today about how to heal a community after war. Now, why has that idea not been picked up and promulgated by the World Bank, by the United Nations Peacebuilding Unit, by all these different groups? You know, we can ask ourselves those questions, but they exist and they exist by people all, at all spectrums of society and women who've come to it from very different experiences. And so it's important to recognize um, that there are groundbreaking ideas and concepts coming from women of color around the world. Uh, and it's time for all of us to start to look for them and, pu and put them on and make sure that they're well known. Uh, I agree. And I, I, I was just wondering, you know, if it's, if it's because if those women who are really at the front line of, of exclusion and oppression, I mean, if you think about the civil rights movement, I mean, there's women like Sarah May, May Fleming, Authorine Lucy, Claudette Colvin, Fanny Cheney. Those are women, you know, who typically aren't celebrated. But, you know, when you look into it, that they were plaintiffs in cases or they stood up against Jim Crow laws. Uh, and risked the great deal in doing so and, you know, had a pivotal effect. Um, and I'm wondering, do they also need to be, because typically they're not, they, di they, weren't, they didn't have positions as uh, privileged positions and still they were able to do that. And I'm wondering, does that also fit in with this concept of women of color and the, the influence that they have in terms of human rights? Yes, uh, for sure. You know, of course, in that era, not only in the U.S., but around the world, everything is patriarchal. Everything was the big man. You know, you have the big man, the big leader, and that's a man. And the women may be actually doing more and making things operate. And so decisions were made, you know, that, okay, we're only going to have these men talk at the March on Washington or, you know, you're, you're put into these subordinated roles. And and so there's a, a big effect. If, if, if people don't see certain types of people celebrated for what they do, they consciously or unconsciously think, oh, well, that kind of person doesn't do that. You know, black women were not involved in the civil rights movement or they can't be a Supreme Court judge or they can't be, you know, X, Y, or Z because you haven't seen it. And so it's very destructive for everyone, not just, you know, little girls, uh, little black girls who don't see anybody like them become president of the United States, but for other people who subconsciously think, well, you know, we're not going to have your kind of person do something because that's not what you, that's not what you do. And so um, I also participated in that um, book you just heard about on black women in international law. And I did research and I found all of the black women who were you know, serving on international courts, 
and and who have been prominent in you know United Nations and other organizations. And almost none of these people had I heard of, or has anyone uh, heard of. And so, one of my current projects is I'm doing a a coffee table book uh, that's called Black Women uh, and the Law, and it's going to have a couple hundred women who have played a role, all black women in the United States, as lawyers and judges and politicians and professors and because people wouldn't know we exist. Unfortunately, blacks are only about 5% of American lawyers. And so black women are whatever, maybe 2%. So we're such a minuscule part, you know, of, you know, our profession and the same for academia that, um, you know, no one even thinks we could be a professor or we could be a lawyer or we could be a, a judge. And so, uh, you know, Professor Spain Bradley and, and I and others, you know, we are committed to using our voice, our distinctive voices, to get this knowledge out there. And also in the work that we're doing and the positions we hold, you know, it shows people that, oh, this type of person can do, uh, you know, this type of work uh, and, and so forth. And, and I'm in the U.S. context, I'm very excited by the fact that we have Kamala Harris, you know, the senator, one of the senators from California, mm-hmm. who is running for vice president for the Democratic Party. And as we know, she's certainly a woman of color, having a father from Jamaica and a mother from India and, and, and you know, spanning those cultures um, as she as she grew up. So, you know, if Senator Biden or Vice President Biden gets elected and, you know, then she's after him, I mean, then we could see, uh, you know, a a woman of color as the president of the United States of America. Right now, that just seems so impossible. But we all thought Barack Obama becoming president of the United States was going to be impossible, too. And it did happen. Have things changed in terms of, you know, I mean, if you talk about Kamala Harris, for example, uh, I mean, if you look at the United States, for example, these, you know, how it is these days, and, you you know, you have a president who is appealing to racist animosity and almost this kind of tribal division, roughly along racial lines, you know, is there still the opportunities for women of color to have the same kind of influence in terms of human rights? And also at the international level as well, you know, is, uh, things have changed at the international level. Things have changed with international law. There's not the same appetite for cooperation and for kind of globalism that m- might have found the human rights treaties and things like that. Is there still nonetheless the same opportunities for women of color to have that kind of influence? Do the tactics need to change in relation to that? And, and is it, is, do they, can they still have that same impact? So, Mark, I think a lot of the research has shown in across all sectors, government, corporate world, um, NGOs, etc., the bias that men and women have towards women is sky high. (laughs) And when you intersect racial identity, however described, the bias against people who are identified as coming from certain racial backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds is also sky high. So women of color face extremely uh, tough barriers by their colleagues, by their their supervisors, by those who report to them uh, because of their identity. And that has been the case. It continues to be the case. I think what we see with a president like the one that we have in the United States right now is giving people permission uh, from his view to be very explicit about those biases. But I would say that they've existed all along. And, you know, there's an important and and difficult conversation to have about the differences between implicit and explicit bias and discrimination and how one um, dismantles that in the right way. Uh, But I want to go back to something else that we were talking about earlier, which is, you know, what is important for our listeners to understand about the distinctive voice uh, of women of color around the world. And I have an answer to that based on my own experience and based on lots of my research. Uh, When conditions are oppressive, often from birth, 
what does one do? Well, women of color show and demonstrate high levels of surviving in tough conditions. That creates resilience. All the resilience research tells us that resilience can be developed in different ways, but it's often most strongly developed when people survive and overcome various kinds of oppression. Similarly, how is empathy developed? The research tells us that empathy is not necessarily innate. It's something that is learned uh, and that it's learned often when people themselves have experienced being treated poorly, having their dignity violated, that they don't want to continue to do that to others. And I think that's my story. I grew up uh, in, in part in central Ohio in a town that was incredibly racist, uh, where I had daily experiences when I left my house to go to school or to go to the grocery store uh, and quickly felt what the absence of dignity is like. And it developed in me great empathy so that I can look at someone who's experiencing oppression in another place for another reason and truly empathize with their experience. Uh, and I bring that kind of sentiment to my new role as vice chancellor of equity, diversity, and inclusion at UCLA, where there's a lot of people uh, that my team serves. And we have to do so knowing that we don't know everybody's experience, um, but we can empathize with how they describe what they're going through. So I think the, the resilience plus the empathy uh, that is often developed for women of color around the world because of the conditions that we grow up in is something that gives us distinctive voice and allows us time and time again to contribute to the promotion of rights and dignity uh, throughout history. Yes, yeah. and in addition to what Professor Spain Bradley just said, uh, resilience and empathy, I've written about transcendence, right? Transcendence that, uh, you know, women of color can transcend their conditions. Black women in America, we are transcending uh, conditions where we were not meant to survive. Um, at the same time, there's, uh, you know, so much racism, sexism, uh, xenophobia, homophobia, all of this going on in many countries of the world. At the same time, we see, aha, Black Lives Matters, a re-emphasis on fighting against uh, oppression. The whole world looking to see not only what is happening in the U.S. with Black Lives Matters, but other countries are pointing out their own racism and problems in their society. And so that's really positive. If, if we have a change in um, administration uh, after November, um, a change in party, you will see a whole different attitude, uh, you know, develop from the top about being supportive for issues affecting diversity, equity, and inclusion, for efforts supporting human rights. You will see a different uh, United States relating to the rest of the world again and, and why why is that then respect. because you know if if i mean for, according to critical race theory you know since the civil rights movement things never got that much better and racism is still inherent in american law in many ways um is is that because this clash has happened and people have the you know it's it's this resilience has built up uh, and you know once the administration changes then it the situation will be better you know, because the, the other party, the Democratic Party, is built on totally different principles than the Republican Party, um, you will have a different outlook. Now, some people will say, well, well, really, there's not that much difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. You know, they're all operating within global capitalism, within imperialism. And what's that big a difference? But I think we have seen in the last four years, there can be a very big difference in respect for democratic principles, for human rights, for, you know, uh, inclusion. And so even though, yes, overall a society can still have racial problems, which we do and will have at least this way, um, we will have an administration that will resemble what we had more under President Obama. Yes, he was still head of a country that was bombing people in the Middle East and doing certain other things that were horrible, but he's also his administration and a, and a Biden administration will, will have a whole different approach. They'll be putting different people into the positions, including they will put in a lot of women 
of color into positions in addition to, you know, of course, uh, Vice President Harris uh, herself. But I want to go back to Derek Bell um, in, in his book where he, he talks about the permanence of racism, that racism is not necessarily something that's going to go away. And that's very depressing, perhaps, and many people criticized him and said that that's not right. But he looked at it, and I look at it as racism is like a cancer, right? Or racism, you could look at it as like alcoholism. I mean, it's you're going to always be that, but you can treat it, right? You can treat it, and you can treat racism with chemotherapy and, you know, surgery and, you know, the equivalent of that under the law in, in terms of human rights to push forward, even if it means when my, I have 15 grandchildren, when my youngest of my grandchildren is himself a grandfather, we may still likely be dealing with different racial and ethnic issues for that era. But to me, we're all judged not by did we end racism in our lifetime or sexism or homophobia or any other, but what, what, what did you contribute? What was the nature of your contribution to the struggle for justice in your own country and others? And so despite how depressing the current climate is nationally and, and internationally, both literally and figuratively, you know, I'm committed and I know Professor Spain Bradley is to that we're going to use our resources that we have and our voice to participate in that fight and it will be transcendent in, in doing that. Um, and, and, and that to me gives me hope and, and gives me strength uh, as we prepare, I think, for increasingly difficult circumstances that are gonna happen between now and November in the United States, politically and, and health-wise. I think things are gonna get a lot worse, but we, uh, I'm confident we will, you know, we will fight these battles that have to be fought. Is that then a distinction you would say for both of you with what you would might call now traditional critical race theory and, and what you said about the permanence of, of racism in the legal system, for you there is a possibility of transcendence, there is a possibility of, of influence uh, for the faces at the bottom of the well. I mean, I think this brings us back to the importance of having the dialogue that uh, we've been able to have here today, which is getting us to the question of what really is racism? Where does it come from? Why does it persist? And how do we dismantle it? And I think that's a project uh, that everybody has a role to play in. And one of the things that we go back to is the idea of humans and how we identify ourselves. Uh, what's the right way forward in the future for human identification? Is it nationality? Is it DNA? Uh, all of these things. And I think, again, for listeners who may be coming to this conversation anew, uh, it is critical to reassert the age-old truth that race is not based in science or biology. Uh, and this is something that in 1950, the United Nations through UNESCO issued a report on called the race question, which is a really important read. And it said, you know, this is a man-made, in 1950, the language was man-made construct. It's made up. So how do we envision our human family in the 100 years, 200 years to come? And how do we grow into that? And I think to, to Dean Wing's point about the challenges, we have amazing challenges headed for us this century from climate change. Uh, I am sitting here in Los Angeles right now with smoke in the air as wildfires burn not that far away. Uh, and when you are in a crisis where survival is on the line, how can people come together? How can we build stronger communities? I think we do that through accepting each other's identity uh, and doing so with dignity and then getting away from the constant need to differentiate and, and ascribe hierarchy or power to certain groups. Uh, that is a grand ambition and not one that human history has shown we're very good at, uh, but it's certainly a way that we need to adapt in the future. I think critical race theorists, of which I consider myself one, <laughs> is an important part of deconstructing the way things have been. Uh, and when you get to the bottom of deconstruction, you start reconstruction, which is to say, now how do we rebuild and how do we grow into the future that we need to be? Okay. 
Dean Wing, did you want to add something to that? I, I agree with, with everything that Professor Spain Bradley ha has said. And, you know, I draw strength from the fact that through educational programs such as this, you know, we get to share, um, you know, what critical race theory, critical race feminism are, and global critical race theory and feminism are about. And we are able to reach out so that in the future, you know, people who are in Belfast and people who are in Iowa City, Iowa, and people who are in Los Angeles or Paris or, you know, you pick the spot that, that we can work together uh, on these issues. And the fact that something is different today, we, everybody has a cell phone, everybody has a camera, everybody's involved in some kind of social media so that when something happens, whether it's some horrific racist, sexist thing, the whole world can know about it in incredibly short time and, and, and see what's happening and can reach out and join together. So I think uh, the, the use of the technologies we have, which have problems in using them, and, uh, at least though can, can help us as uh, we, we move forward in, in this, uh, this difficult time period. Okay, let me end with a question then, touching on Professor Spring Bradley's point about reconstruction. Um, you know, if there is, you know, this understudied phenomenon and, and you know, this uh, invisible thing that we need to make more visible about this relationship between women of colour and the distinctive voice that they have in terms of development of human rights, how best to, to move forward in the study of that? Because critical race theory and, and I think global critical race feminism as well has, has kind of rejected a more empirical approach to research on the basis that, you know, it it has its own kind of uh, standards that could be used as exclusionary and, and that, you know, hard empiricism is impossible in, in the social sciences. Um, is it worth uh, to try and to reach out to uh, dialogue with more empirical approaches to study this? Um, and also, do you have to be a woman of color to, to engage in this kind of research? Yes. Um Many things have spun off from critical race theory, right? Critical race feminism, there's Latino crit, there's Asian crit, there's Desi crit, there's Indian crit, there's disability crit. Well, one of the things that have spun off recently is what we call e-crit. So there is a group of critical race theory scholars who are involved in em empirical research. Mainly these are younger people who have PhDs in, you know, statistics and other kinds of sociological fields. And so it is no longer true to say, you know, critical race theory scoffs at, you know, things that deal with empirical work. So uh, that field is, is, is growing and um, is important. And also uh, the question about who can write about this goes back to something I said. I have devoted, you know, almost 40 years to writing about Palestinians, even though I'm not Palestinian. But what it means is that I am very aware I am not a Palestinian, even if I write about them. And so I have to start by asking Palestinian women, right, and they're not a monolith by any means, what do they think and involving them with what I'm thinking. And interestingly, I have found my status as a mother of seven actually helps me around the world, not my professor hat, but the fact that I'm a, a, a parent uh, of all these children, which is a privileged status for women, uh, especially that I have five sons, which itself is sexist to focus. But this status has given me access to women all over the world who are at the grassroots, you know, who are not professors, don't have degrees. And so engaging with them, then I can write about different fields that they're not going to be in that position to have the luxury of writing about it. So yes, you could be a global critical race feminist and write about women of color, being aware of what you're doing and trying to get input so that from people from the group so you wouldn't uh, accidentally be you know insulting people or making presumptions and yourself then being an imperial scholar guilty of you know some of the same behavior uh, that you might criticize if it was done by other people and I, I would agree that you know I am also a, a mother and a parent and it's taught me a lot about 
learning and educating and being with people. Uh, and the thing that it's taught me the most is back to this principle of subsidiarity that, you know, my children and other children have a lot to say about their experience in the world and what they need to thrive. And it's not appropriate always to come in with a, here's how I, here's how it was when I was little, this is going to work for you. Uh, and I think the same is true in scholarship that Anyone, of course, is welcome to write in different scholarly areas, including this one, but you have to have an authentic and real commitment uh, to the project of inclusive change. And that means addressing the barriers, whether it's sexism, racism, homophobia, or so much more that prevent that. And it also means, as uh, Dean Wing has said, with coming with a humility that um, you might be studying or researching about something. And you also want to make sure that you're listening to the voices of people who are directly impacted and, def and directly experiencing what's going on. Uh, I think, you know, the question methodology is always fun for scholars to talk about, uh, but what are we really getting at? Whether it's empirical work, behavioral work, theoretical work, normative work, thinking about praxis, there's so many different ways to research uh, different topics and they all have their value and they all have their limitations but they're generally based on an assumption that ideas and knowledge will change minds and change behavior. And when we're dealing with discrimination and racism and sexism, uh, sometimes knowledge does change minds and behavior and sometimes it doesn't. So I think the project of promoting dignity and human rights for people and for people who are at the bottom of whatever of society's well, uh, has to go beyond just knowledge production. It has to go into really figuring out what it takes to move groups of people, neighborhoods, uh, clubs, societies, et cetera, into a new space that we can be one together, committed human family for the future, because we're going to need it. Um, we are going to you know, th thrive and survive together, or we've got a lot of challenges on our hands. But I think an optimistic view is that there are time and time again, people from all kinds of places have come together uh, to get through tough times, and we can do it again. Dean Wing, Professor Spain Bradley, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Thank you so much, Mark.